Hi, insiders, and happy Earth Day. We have a new and special treat for you today. The Biggest Little Farm, The Return, is now streaming on Disney+. And joining us to interview Molly and John Chester is Peter Gwynn, editor-at-large at National Geographic and co-host of the award-winning podcast, Overheard. Molly and John are farmers and co-founders of Apricot Lane Farms, who you may be familiar with from their 2018 award-winning feature documentary film. In The Biggest Little Farm, The Return, we meet their animals like Georgie the gopher and Emma the pig and learn how the Chesters maximize biodiversity and regeneratively grow the most nutrient-dense food possible. It's fascinating to watch and an eye-opening look at how farmers adapt to ever-changing climates. I'm gonna tell you about this place that 10 years ago didn't even exist. And what created this wasn't brilliance. It was freedom to allow nature to show us a better way. That's exactly how my wife Molly and I rebuilt this whole farm over the last decade. And it all started with a dream. Hey, John and Molly. Hi. Hi. So why don't we just start off, maybe you could both introduce yourselves, um, just say your name and what you do. My name is Molly Chester. I'm a chef and farmer of Apricot Lane Farms from the Biggest Little Farm. My name is John Chester, along with my wife Molly, we're co-founders of Apricot Lane Farms, and I'm also uh, a filmmaker. Okay, so for people who haven't seen The Biggest Little Farm, can you tell us a little bit about your farm, Apricot Lane? Well, we were living in the city with an adopted rescue dog, and we had talked about this idea of building a farm in the image of an ecosystem for a long time, and we decided to do it. It was probably about 2011, and the idea was that we would enter into this land, regenerate it, return it back into a biologically diverse ecosystem and then try to farm within that diversity as a way to create a self-balancing system which is pretty different compared to the way most farming has gone over the last hundred years so it was uh the perfect mission for two very idealistic naive former city dwellers okay i have to ask though did you watch a lot of episodes of green acres before you went and did this <laughs> No, apparently not enough. Um, that is a question that gets is asked. Is it really? Well, I think that's because there is sort of this, I don't know if it's an American sort of like part of the American dream or one of the American dreams is like, yeah, we're going to just leave the rat race and go back to sort of this simple life on a farm. But you guys actually have done this. I mean, does it, is there some sort of impulse to get close to the land that you guys felt like you were tapping into? Well, I think the idea taps into a universal coding within the human experience to want to go beyond just purpose and meaning in our lives and find this connection to the ultimate source. And whether we know it or not, it's programmed within our DNA to want to find that. And farming is just a term used as a method, a necessity, an excuse to find that. And for us, I think we were just tapping into something that everyone has in them, whether they know it or not. We were just 
a little maybe crazy enough to to sort of admit it to each other and declare it to the world and our poor little dog you know <laughs> how did people react when you told them what you were doing we've certainly got many different reactions and not all of them were enthusiastic. Yeah, I think some of that resistance is a good indicator of where you need to go in life, you know? Yeah. And most of your family and closest friends will not be telling you it's a good idea. It's usually strangers. Oh, interesting. Huh. Okay, so how did you guys decide among yourselves you're going to do this? So we it's always been in us. I I think, you know, it just as life goes on, you're seeking these meaningful and purposeful experiences. And at some point you come to a crossroad and you realize the last one is that connection to each other and your connection to the planet. And, and to get there, you kind of need to go all in, you know, and, and you need to feel that what it feels like to be vulnerably um, dependent on the ecosystem. I also think one of the things about the unique combination of John and I that really has enabled what we desired to come true is uh, that we do kind of come at any problem from very different perspectives. And at the beginning, I may have come in with the desire for a certain type of food. John had a real innate understanding of more kind of the wilderness aspect of the ecosystem part. And through the pull and tug of those things and the understanding of how the interplay of them works, we've come to a great spot. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the one thing we both probably would say we know for sure is that neither of us know nothing for sure. So it's really good to stay open yeah. uh, to the possibilities um, and other perspectives that someone may bring to the solution to the problems that, you know, that you face. Those first couple of years, I've always said it felt like we're riding on the wings of God. You just said yes is essentially all that happened. And you're having to then learn through the challenges that are meant to strengthen you in the unique ways that you need to be strengthened to be able to finish the task. Once you guys decided you wanted to do this, where do you go looking to find, you know, a farm? That's a really good question. <laughs> well, I didn't want to visit this farm. Yeah, John this... was like, let's go check this place out. And I was like, oh, it's a horse farm. I wasn't really- a Horse and lemon farm. It didn't look yeah. like, they didn't sell it well, I guess. But... but we knew the moment we walked on. Yeah, we didn't even get to this gate and we were like, we have to make this happen. We and felt it. We felt it. Most of the farms in this area, they've literally eliminated every tree or plant that is not a crop. So. There's no diversity. There's no place for a hawk to perch or an owl to perch, you know? And there were at least some old growth trees here. And, and uh, you know, when we found it, we, we knew it was the right spot. So what's the first thing you did? Where do you even start with a massive project like this? Where we thought we would start and where we needed to start were two different things. Where we thought we would start was, okay, what are we going to plant? But the reality was we really ultimately had to start with rebuilding the soil before we really could even begin to, to plant new new things the soil was in comparison to what it is today it was dead and we had to create a system that would enhance and regenerate that so composting starting a composting operation on the farm so that every cutting or every ground up old growth tree got turned back into mulch to feed those microorganisms to start that flywheel of essentially alchemizing death back into life to build soil. That really is ground zero, I guess, right? It's everything. <laughs> right. 
you know, without that, there is no new life after death. Death is intentionally reconverted, transferred back into a living thing through that process of decay and decomposition that happens on the, in the soil layer. I know it started off as a horse and lemon farm. So now what would you tell people what kind of farm it is? Just on the animal side, cows, pigs, chicken, sheep, ducks, guinea hens, turkeys. Oranges, apples, nectarines, peaches, plums, cherimoyas, guavas, macadamia nuts. Figs. And then over 15 different varieties of avocado trees. And one kid. What you got there, Buster? Maybe a nut, an uh, apple, maybe a peach. All right, not too many. It's not required for a biologically diverse farm to grow that much diversity in terms of food crop. It's just something that too naive people do. Um, they like to cook with all the things. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem. You know? Don't start a farm with a chef. It's, it's yeah, rule yeah. number one. Yeah, I'm writing that do down, that. actually. That's... Yeah, you don't, you don't do that. Um, what's important um, is essentially creating the immunology of your farm. The immune system of the farm is based upon its biodiversity. And I think what we've added is this layer of stability that doesn't always fix a problem right away, but there is a toolbox there waiting to be tapped into and called on that comes back into life that starts to eat away at what was maybe a, a disease epidemic in the making. I'm making it sound easy. But it wasn't. The birds attacked our orchards. We lost almost 70% of the fruit. Oh my gosh. Snails smothered our trees. So we can't put poison out? Nope. Our ducks polluted our pond. Coyotes killed our chickens. One of the things in the film that I was struck by is like just how you would address problems that that arose and the one i'm thinking of is the snails how did you guys go about finding solutions that would fit within your philosophy well first we panicked <laughs> because everything thought we thought it was the end so we would panic then we would probably fight about it and then <laughs> yeah we would fight um and then we would try to maybe think of ways to fight it we realized that every act of control that we want to put onto the system has collateral damage. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think through, well, if I do this, what other things will die because of it? And there's no perfect solution. You realize very quickly on there's no such thing as good and evil. There's no such thing as right and wrong. In nature, there is one law and it's called consequence. Mm. Well, what eats snails? Or what <laughs> eats ants? Or what does this? Or why does it even exist? Is it existing because of something else? We're, have we caused the mm. problem? Which oftentimes is the case. So I think you have to like be willing to be curious in the moments of that great fear, you know, because that is what we ultimately realized was the antidote to all of our fear at every moment was actually a deep sense of curiosity for it not trying to control it completely, but actually try to understand why it existed. The solutions to our problems began to appear within the diversity that we had created. Hawks returned to chase away the starlings. Guardian dogs protected the chickens. Oh, and as for that snail problem, 
In just one season, our ducks ate over 96,000 snails, turning the snails into nitrogen-rich duck poop, adding yet another layer of fertility to regenerate our soils. The time period that you guys have been there has been a pretty rough time for California and California farmers in particular. I mean, we've seen, you know, the fire seasons, you know, wind, drought, et cetera. It seems like a whole nother layer on top of this already big challenge that, that you both have undertaken. That's it not didn't feel like the world was ending. I mean, it was the beginning of the worst drought in 1200 years. They said these winds are 50 miles an hour, get ready for them. And they were 80 miles an hour like a sustained 80 mile an hour wind for not just a day, but for sometimes weeks, sometimes, you know, on and off is intense, add fire to it. I think it has felt apocalyptic at, at times, but is there still more we can do to create a resilience for the next season of those challenges? Absolutely. And we're learning every year through surviving it, what we can do to adapt to those changes. And I think that, that's not exclusive to our journey. So looking back, is there anything you guys would have done differently? When you're rebuilding something like a piece of land, actually start where there's already something working. There's something stable and healthy about this biome. You want to put the next venture right next to it because there's a stability that it offers. If you try to like create health here and a healthy island here and a healthy island here, it's much more difficult. There are these islands that are not interacting, they're not working together. And so now I think, you know, looking back, I would probably have paid more attention mm. to where things were already working and start there and expand out. And it says so much about even the way that we build our lives, you know, like what is it that we resonate with and in building the life that we want to live? What is the person we want to be? Well, what is the thing that first sparks my interest? Because if you feed into that, it, it expands into what becomes the career or what becomes the life you were born to live. And I, and I think there's so much in that that was missed in the beginning when we were just coming in here trying to fix it all. It sounds like sage advice. Thank you, Peter, for that great interview and joining us for this Earth Day celebration. To continue the conversation, we're talking to Devar Ardalan from National Geographic. Devar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Thrilled to have you here. So I'd love to start by hearing about your work history and how that led to Nat Geo. Absolutely. Thanks so much. So I came from 20 years at NPR News, where I produced everything on stories on girls and gangs in Long Island to stories in Alexandria, Egypt, around climate change. At NPR News, I was responsible for all weekend programming, and it was just amazing to be part of the NPR family. I later moved into the open innovation field, where I was director of storytelling for a company called Second Muse, where we created virtual reality stories in the South, South Pacific as a way to preserve heritage. So it's a really interesting way to use emerging storytelling technologies. And then later, really, I dove into ways to integrate artificial intelligence into conversational AI and storytelling, again, looking at emerging technology as a way to preserve knowledge so that a chatbot can actually tell you a story maybe about your grandmother as opposed to a chatbot only being there for delivering pizza. 
And it was during the pandemic that I was approached by Whitney Johnson, uh, vice president at National Geographic, and she invited me to join the audio team. So it's been one of the best jobs I've ever had. I love my job, my team, and I'm executive producer of audio at National Geographic. Okay, so you're slightly accomplished, just to say the <laughs> least. <laughs> uh, so what is your role in Compass now at NatGeo? Yeah, so we're basically the National Geographic audio team. We're building those new frontiers so that perhaps we can be uh, really s reflecting the storytelling tradition that fans have come to expect from National Geographic through photography or cinematography, but now through audio. So we're all about sharing surprising and dynamic like scientific discoveries and explorations from around the world through audio. Yeah, so we have a weekly show called Overheard, and that's where we really take uh, listeners inside the yellow rectangle, sort of like what you guys do with Movie Insider. And we tell listeners about conversations overheard at National Geographic. So we might take you to the Himalaya as Peter Gwen is searching for snow leopards uh, with one of our explorers. Or you might hear Amy Briggs, one of our other co-hosts, on an assignment searching for Amelia Earhart. Uh, it's just amazing range of stories. You might hear uh, explorer Paula Kahumbu talking about the Serengeti and all the ways Kenyan scientists are advancing conservation. Really, our emphasis is asking our explorers to share audio diaries. And these audio diaries are what get integrated into the stories and the conversations, which make them really rich and dynamic. Audio diaries, that's really interesting. How did you define that as the approach? Well, you know, it's it happened that I joined during uh, the pandemic. And so how do you tell an explorer who's at the edge of some amazing discovery to send you information? Well, we just said use your iPhone voice memo and take, you know, sound of the universe around you and then also send us some audio diaries. It's fascinating because not only have we incorporated these audio diaries into our episodes, but we've also created this new project called SoundBank. And SoundBank is where we're inviting photographers and explorers to upload two minutes of audio from anywhere they are on assignment. And so this is really, imagine, you know, a future sound library of natural sound, but it could be a hyena on a kill in the Serengeti. It could be a wild dog in India that's come across, you know, a lion. So it's crazy what the explorers are sharing. And they're also including like directionality notes for us to know when we're mixing it, that the female hyenas are like back here and you know, mm -hmm. what's happening in the front. So when you think about like the future of spatial audio, imagine what Disney's really amazing at immersively being able to take your listener through a natural environment. So it's a really fun time to be at National Geographic Audio. I mean, it's so cool just the way that things are evolving. And I imagine it sounds like throughout the course of your career, your passions are evolving as well. Can you talk about that a little bit within the confines of National Geographic and how you make selections on what to cover and what to feature? Absolutely. I think it's so important to uh, take a measure of the times. And so it's really important for us when National Geographic Society has something like 8,000 explorers around the world for us to have a focus on diversity. We want to give a platform to incredible explorers who are in remote places of the world or even here in the United States who come from 
African American background, uh, you know, in Latin America, in Asia, like what are you doing and how can we be a vessel for you to share the impact that you're making around the environment or, you know, in the wildlife categories or biodiversity. So that is a big emphasis for our show. But then also we're really late to the game of podcasting. So how do you think of what's next? So in that context, we're working with Dolby Atmos to look at future uh, sort of software around spatial audio. And we're future proofing some of our episodes so that we're ready in case there's a platform that's, you know, uh, sharing stories in immersive content. And again, like Disney is ahead of all of that. And then in the context of audio, how can we do that in our storytelling and be ready when podcasting is available to be distributed in spatial audio? So maybe to answer your question, it's uh, making sure that we honor uh, what the public wants, what the public is hungry for, but then also having an eye on innovation and what's next. It sounds like you're doing just that. I mean, that's so cool going into a podcast space and then hearing the world that can feel so far away to you and be fully immersed in that. It's it's really, really cool. Do you have any like favorite places that you've represented within the space like or I don't know, a location that you're super excited that you're able to showcase? Well, all the work we're doing with spatial audio is very experimental, but we actually have gone to the studios of our amazing audio engineer who's mixing these. And so, for example, you will hear the sound of two loons talking to one another across a dark, starry lake in Maine. And what's beautiful is that, well, what's not beautiful is because of light pollution, these conversations that animals have with each other are in danger. But when the lake is quiet and dark and the stars are out, the loons are talking to each other. And so you hear the echoes of the loons coming from the different sides of the lake. And it's very captivating because it's just a moment of audible earth. And you're transported there to understand that it's not just about your everyday busy lives, like how are we impacting in the environment and how can we just pause to like embrace this side of knowledge that comes from nature. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned how can we pause. You came in at such a unique time into Nagio within the pandemic. Do you think that that was like the impetus to then launch something within the audio space? And then, I mean, how do you even go from there launching this within the pandemic? It's so interesting. Yeah, well, Overheard has been our flagship podcast show. So we were a seasonal show and we're now a weekly show because we realized that there was more of a desire from our audience for us to have more presence. So we're now producing 52 episodes a week. And so in the context of piloting SoundBank, we're actually including SoundBank as a short segment at the end of some overheard pieces. Because again, we can't actually distribute spatial audio yet, but we can still give you 30 seconds of audible earth from our SoundBank so that you can imagine what's coming. So we're taking it step by step. I love it. As every good explorer, I imagine they do take it step by step. And I think it's so cool that, you know, Nat Geo, I often think of photography and telling these amazing stories of far off places or things that we can be involved in. But I think that this is really cool, the audio space and the representation that you're providing throughout the world. That's really, really cool. I would say that you have a lot of proud moments, I imagine, but if you could share with us a few proud moments that you've had throughout your career, or even within Nat Geo. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess really I'm also a mom, proud mom. I decided to be a producer, to be behind the scenes so that I could raise my children. I find that having that balance is really important. I have an amazing, loving husband. Uh, I think having a, a work-life balance is important. And I've been able to do that both in my career at NPR and my National Geographic career. I think that makes me a fuller person to give more when I feel like, you know, I have other parts of me as a woman, as a mom uh, that are also fulfilled. Uh, but in terms of my career, uh, when I was at NPR, the stories that we did on the impact of climate change when we were in Alexandria, Egypt, at the Fertile Crescent, where civilization began, and you see the way that salt is coming in from the Mediterranean Sea into the Nile River, and you look at date farms that actually have to be completely planted in different ways because of the salt that's penetrating the land, that's when you visibly see the impact that is happening around us on the environment. And to be able to have the honor to tell a story like that and to take people to these faraway destinations, I think that was definitely one of the most uh, inspiring moments when I was physically there. We were towards the end of our reporting and I still hadn't found a farmer and I was like, guys, you go, I'm going to stay with this car and I'm going to drive up and down Alexandria until I find a farm. And I actually <laughs> found a farm and I found this amazing woman who talked and showed me the sand, you know, and how uh, salt had penetrated the earth. And that was sort of, I guess, a little bit indicative of how I don't give up and I try my best to make sure that that sense of discovery and surprise comes in everything that we do. You are. You're inspiring so many people to be more curious and to discover really, really important things, obviously, across the world. But I also love how you added in there, it's important for your personal life to maintain almost a sense of self-care and that balance that you're talking about. I think that that's a really beautiful picture that you just painted for us right there. So thank you for that, Devar. I want to hear a little bit more about you personally speaking of that. Are you ready to take on the Insider 5 with us to hear more about your Disney fandom? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. What is your earliest memory of being a Disney movie fan? I would have to say 101 Dalmatians. I found that to be such an amazing animation and it's so fun and timeless. And the way like Cruella DeVille was such a committed and commanding and clever villain just made it sort of even more interesting. So I would say that's a classic. It's witty and the animation is amazing. I've got to say, I love that movie too. The canine crunchies, the song, there's so many fun little tidbits in there. You're invited to a Disney themed costume party. Who or what do you dress as? I would say Captain Hook. And that's because I actually played Captain Hook in a summer camp play in Vermont when I was a little kid and I remember just some of the lines you know it's just there's a lot of animation when you're Captain Hook you have to project a lot and he's also like daring but also charming uh, and then believe it or not later come to find out on a recent episode of Overheard that there were actually a time when there were pirate queens who ruled the high seas so we what? just did an episode on pirate queens and I was like oh my god I didn't know maybe that's why I liked playing Captain Hook. <laughs> <laughs> Bold choices already. I like this. Like very strong characters. <laughs> and Captain Hook, that's a great choice. I haven't heard that one before. I love that. It's Disney karaoke night. What song do you sing? 
Well, probably this is one that I've heard, you know, my nephew sing, my my kids as well. And I'd have to say a whole new world. And I think it's just because from Aladdin, but it's just so absolutely broad and beautiful. And that line with, you know, tell me princess, now when did you last let your heart decide? And I just find that so beautiful to say, you know, we're showing you the world in all its shining and amazing ways, but tell me, princess, what your heart decides. And I like that about that song. Devar, it's like you work for Nat Geo or something when you pick a song like that. <laughs> it, it definitely is also reflects the way that I like to see the world, so. <laughs> I was gonna say that harkened back to what you said earlier, that beautiful balance of your personal life and obviously being curious and wanting to be an explorer. That's a really cool way to look at that song. So thank you, that was a really cool answer. If you could only ride one ride all day to Disney Park, which would it be? Okay, so now I'm suddenly thinking that I have a theme, but I didn't plan it this way. So literally <laughs> going back to Disneyland, it would be the Indiana Jones adventure. And it was like snakes and fires and temples. And it was really an immersive experience before there was virtual reality. And I think that was always very fun. And you actually get to see the Indiana Jones character and you feel like you're in the movie set. So I'd say that one. <laughs> Were you, can I ask you, I'm doing just a sidebar because I'm geeking out, because I grew up on Indiana Jones. I loved Indiana Jones. Um, did you grow up loving those movies? And do you think that maybe, I don't know, you've seen places in the world through Nat Geo or throughout your work that you're like, I feel like Indiana Jones right now. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that you have a curiosity for the world and then you see it shown through move, the magic of movies, whether it's Disney or others. and you're kind of transported somewhere and you imagine yourself as having that adventure. So I did grow up with those movies, absolutely. And I think it just inspires you to like keep going and be motivated to learn more about yourself, your strengths and weaknesses and challenge yourself more. I mean, as a kid, I would go on the Indiana Jones ride and I was like, this is the coolest thing. I get to live out this adventure. Harkening back to what you do for Nat Geo, you're transporting people to these places. So it's really cool. Which Disney character has the best life advice and what is it? Okay, Mulan. Because she dressed up as a man, so her father didn't need to go save China. And really the concept of your gender doesn't indicate strength, your strength, right? So that was all about Mulan. And I had to look that up, but then when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, I have to say Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> a great, great choice that embodies so much right there that yes, everyone has their place and can be a warrior and fight through life. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Devar, for joining us today and telling us about all that you've accomplished, all the exciting work that you're doing at Nagio, and of course, giving us an insider's look into you as an insider, a Disney fan, I should say. So thank you so much for joining us today. Aw, thanks, Lisa, so much for including me. That's our show. The Biggest Little Farm, The Return, is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. To hear more from Peter Gwynn, check out his podcast, Overheard, and visit nationalgeographic.com slash overheard. So you don't miss any upcoming Disney Movie Insiders Presents podcast episodes, subscribe and follow Disney Movie Insiders Presents. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a rating and review. Visit DisneyMovieInsiders.com or our app and enter bonus code APRICOT. The code expires May 3rd, 2022 at 11.59 p.m. Pacific time. 
Membership is required. Limit one redemption per account. Visit DisneyMovieInsiders.com for terms and conditions. We'll catch you next time, Insiders, with more Disney Movie Magic.